Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello. Thank you for joining us for the Friday, November 10th, 2023 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, what to know about ZepBound, the newest weight loss drug from the Washington Post and cancer screening in older patients from Medscape, plus seven body parts that are more or less useless from interesting facts, and more time permitting. Here's our first report. What to know about ZepBound, the newest weight loss drug, by Teddy Amanabar and Lindsay Bever from The Washington Post. Millions of Americans struggling with obesity now have access to a newly approved weight loss drug called ZepBound, an injectable medication with the same ingredient as the diabetes drug Manjaro, which has been shown to curb hunger cravings and help shed pounds. The Washington Post spoke with experts and patients about how ZepBound works, how it's different from existing diet drugs, and what consumers can expect if they try it. How do Manjaro and ZepBound work? Manjaro, made by Eli Lilly, is the brand name of a weekly injectable medication used to treat type 2 diabetes. ZepBound has the same ingredient and is newly approved to treat obesity. The main ingredient, tirzepatide, mimics two hormones naturally produced in the body, which are involved in the regulation of blood sugar and body weight. The molecule of the drug targets receptors in the brain for these hormones, glucagon-like peptide 1, or GLP-1, and glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide, or GIP. GLP-1 targets receptors in the brain to decrease appetite, and it slows down digestion to help people feel full longer with smaller portions, said Kimberly Gudzun, medical director of the American Board of Obesity Medicine and associate professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, who prescribes the medication. Gudzun advises both Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk, which makes Ozempic and Wigovi. GLP-1 also increases the amount of insulin released by the pancreas after eating, slowing the rise in blood sugar. The hormone GIP, which tirzepatide also mimics, works in the brain to decrease appetite. How effective are Manjaro and ZepBound? Early studies by Eli Lilly suggest tirzepatide can help people lose a significant amount of body weight. In one 72-week randomized controlled trial, People with obesity who took the highest dose of the drug lost about 21% of their total body weight. Another trial showed that after a reduced-calorie diet, regular exercise, and behavioral counseling, people who took the drug lost about a quarter of their total body weight. For the first time, we have a medication for obesity that is getting patients to lose more than 20% of body weight on average, said Andres Acosta, an associate professor of medicine and a consultant in gastroenterology and hepatology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Acosta has accepted research funding and speaking fees from Novo Nordisk and speaking fees from Eli Lilly. How are Manjaro and ZepBound different from Ozempic and Wigovi? Semaglutide is the active ingredient in Ozempic, prescribed for type 2 diabetes, and Wigovi, approved for weight loss. 
Semaglutide works only on the GLP-1 pathway, whereas tirzepatide, which is Mountjaro and Zepbound, works on both the GLP-1 and the GIP pathways. These medications really target the biology of obesity, said Anya Jastrobov, an associate professor of medicine and the director of the Yale Obesity Research Center at Yale School of Medicine. Jastrobov also serves on the advisory boards for Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly. In separate trials of tirzepatide and semaglutide, people taking tirzepatide lost more weight than those taking semaglutide. But the data aren't comparable because there may be differences in the study length and population, experts say. In one trial of diabetes patients that included both drugs, patients who took tirzepatide lost a little more weight than those on a low dose of semaglutide. But doctors say more data are needed comparing the two drugs at higher doses, which is typically how a weight loss patient will use the drug. For that reason, questions remain about whether one drug might be more effective at helping patients lose weight. What are the potential side effects of Mounjaro and Zepbound? All the GLP-1 weight loss drugs have side effects, and Mounjaro and Zepbound appear to have a similar side effect profile to Ozempic and Wigovi. Some doctors think Zepbound may cause fewer side effects in some patients. The most common side effects include nausea, vomiting, indigestion, stomach pain, constipation, and sometimes diarrhea, the company says. More serious side effects include pancreatitis and gallbladder disease. Lilly warns there is also a potential risk of a rare type of thyroid cancer, as tirzepatide caused thyroid tumors in animal testing. Manjaro is prescribed at a low dose and then increased depending on patient tolerability. With those who experience side effects, physicians can increase the dose more slowly or not at all, experts said. Sometimes anti-nausea medication may be prescribed. Rekha Kumar, an endocrinologist at New York Presbyterian and Weill Cornell Medicine, said that some patients tolerate Manjaro better than they do other GLP-1 receptor agonists, the drug category that includes Ozempic and Wigovi. In clinical practice, Gudzun said, she has seen fewer issues with digestive symptoms to date for patients taking Manjaro compared with Ozempic or Wigovi. In some cases, however, patients cannot tolerate the drug and must be taken off it. In Goodzoon's experience, this is rare. I think part of the reason I don't see it as often is that I spend a lot of time talking about strategies to mitigate it, she said. Before Goodzoon prescribes the medication, she said she speaks with her patients about eating smaller portions since overeating can be a main contributor to nausea and vomiting. And because patients are eating less, focusing on eating more nutritious foods, such as fresh fruits and vegetables, lean proteins, and foods high in fiber. Who shouldn't take Manjaro or Zepbound? Those who have a certain type of thyroid cancer, a genetic condition called multiple endocrine neoplasia that causes tumor growth and increases the risk of thyroid cancer, a history of pancreatitis or a slow digestive system, including motility issues, are not good candidates for the drug, experts explain. How much does Zepbound cost? Because Mounjaro has been improved only for type 2 diabetes, it has not typically been covered by insurance to treat obesity. That is expected to change with the FDA approval of Zepbound, and more insurance plans should begin to pay for it. 
The list price of Mount Jaro is $1,023 per month, according to Lilly. But the price people will actually pay for ZepBound depends on their insurance plan and deductible, and some insurance plans may cover most or all of the cost. Charlie Seltzer, an internist and obesity medicine specialist in Philadelphia, said he writes several prescriptions per day for Ozempic and Wigovi, but has written only three prescriptions total for Manjaro because insurance often hasn't covered it for weight loss patients in the past. How long does someone need to take ZepBound? Most experts say people who lose weight on Manjaro should expect to keep taking it indefinitely to keep the weight off. Acosta said patients and providers need to think of weight loss drugs like medications for diabetes or hypertension, which are chronic conditions. The reasons why patients start taking a weight loss drug are the same reasons why they need to continue taking the drug, he said. Will ZepBound solve the problem of diet drug shortages? Some patients already have been using Manjaro off-label because of shortages of Ozempic and Wigovi. Whether ZepBound faces the same issues will depend on patient demand and physician prescribing habits. Mary Halliday, age 40, of Sioux Falls, South Dakota, was recently given a prescription for Manjaro after having trouble refilling her prescription for Ozempic. Halliday said she started taking Ozempic in April of 2022 to treat her type 2 diabetes. Halliday said she lost 60 pounds while taking Ozempic and adopting a healthful diet. Her blood sugar level dropped dramatically, and she had more energy to play with her 7-year-old son. But it got to the point where I hadn't been able to get my Ozempic prescription for a month, she said. Andrew Craftson, a clinical associate professor and the director of the Weight Navigation Program at Michigan Medicine, said the best drug for many patients will probably be the one that is easiest to get because it's available at a nearby pharmacy and covered by insurance. Hopefully, added choices will help mitigate supply chain issues and put pressure to induce competition, he said. Up next, cancer screening in older patients – who to Screen and When to Stop, by Adam Marcus from Medscape. And this is in Q&A format. More than 1 in 10 Americans over age 60 years will be diagnosed with cancer, according to the National Cancer Institute, making screening for the disease in older patients imperative. Much of the burden of cancer screening falls on primary care physicians. Medscape spoke with William L. Dehut, M.D., Chief Scientific Officer of the American Cancer Society, about the particular challenges of screening in older patients. Question. How much does cancer screening change with age? What are the considerations for clinicians? What risks and comorbidities are important to consider in older populations? Answer. We at the American Cancer Society are giving a lot of thought to how to help primary care practices keep up with screening, particularly with respect to guidelines, but also best practices where judgment is required, such as cancer screening in their older patients. We've had a lot of conversations recently about cancer risk in the young, largely because data show rates are going up for colorectal and breast cancer in this population. But it's not one size fits all. Screening for young women who have a BRCA gene, if they have dense breasts, or if they have a strong family history of breast cancer, should be different from those who are at average risk of the disease. 
but statistically, there are about 15 per 100,000 breast cancer diagnoses in women under the age of 40, while over the age of 65, it's 443 per 100,000. So the risk significantly increases with age, but we should not have an arbitrary cutoff. The life expectancy of a woman at age 75 is about 13.5 years. If you're over the age of 70 or 75, then it's going to be comorbidities that you'd look at, as well as individual patient decisions. Patients may say, I don't want to ever go through a mammogram again because I don't want to have a biopsy again, and I'm not going to get treated. Or they may say, my mom died of metastatic breast cancer when she was 82, and I want to know. Question. How should primary care physicians interpret conflicting guidance from the major medical groups? For example, the American College of Gastroenterology and your own organization recommend colorectal screening start at age 45 now. But the American College of Physicians recently came out and said 50. What is a well-meaning primary care physician supposed to do? Answer. We make more of guideline differences than we should. Sometimes guideline differences aren't a reflection of different judgments, but rather what data were available when the most recent update took place. For colorectal cancer screening, the ACS dropped the age to begin screening to 45 in 2018, based on a very careful consideration of disease burden data, and within several years, most other guideline developers reached the same conclusion. However, I think it's good for family practice and internal medicine doctors to know that significant GI symptoms in a young patient could be colorectal cancer. It's not as if nobody sees a 34-year-old or a 27-year-old with colorectal cancer. They should be aware that if something goes away in a day or two, that's fine, but persistent GI symptoms need a cancer workup, colonoscopy, or referral to a gastroenterologist. So that's why I think age 45 is the time when folks should begin screening. Question. What are the risks of overscreening, especially in breast cancer where false positives may result in invasive testing? Answer. What people think of as overscreening takes a number of different forms. What one guideline would imply is overscreening is recommended screening by another guideline. I think we would all agree that in an average risk population, beginning screening before it is recommended would be overscreening, and continuing screening when a patient has life-limiting comorbidities would constitute overscreening. Screening too frequently can constitute overscreening. For example, many women report that their doctors are still advising a baseline mammogram at age 35. Most guideline-developing organizations would regard this as overscreening in an average-risk population. I think we are also getting better, certainly in prostate cancer, about knowing who needs to be treated and not treated. There are a lot of cancers that would have been treated 20 to 30 years ago, but now are being safely followed by PSA and MRI. We may be able to get to that point with breast cancer over time, too. Question. Anything else you'd like to say on this subject that clinicians should know? Answer. The questions about whether or not patients should be screened is being pushed on family practice doctors and internists, and these questions require a relationship with the patient. A hard stopping point at age 70 when lots of people will live 20 years or more doesn't make sense. There's very little data from randomized clinical trials of screening people over the age of 70. 
we know that cancer risk does obviously increase with age, particularly prostate and breast cancer. And these are the cancers that are going to be the most common in your practices. If someone has a known mutation, I think you're going to look differently at screening them. And first-degree family members, particularly for the more aggressive cancers, should be considered for screening. My philosophy on cancer screening in the elderly is that I think the guidelines are guidelines. If patients have very limited life expectancy, then they shouldn't be screened. Patients never think their life expectancy is shorter than 10 years. If their life expectancy is longer than 10 years, then I think, all things being equal, they should continue screening. But the question of ongoing screening needs to be periodically revisited. Up next, seven body parts that are more or less useless. From Interesting Facts. The human body contains around 600 muscles, more than 200 bones, and all sorts of tendons, fascia, and organs. But some of them are pretty much obsolete, even if they make for decent party tricks. A few body parts have even started to disappear already and are only present in certain segments of the population. In extreme cases, as people who have had appendectomies or wisdom tooth extractions can attest, it seems like some of these body parts exist only to hurt us. Are you missing a mostly useless arm muscle? What muscles are key for dogs but not particularly handy for us? These seven body parts are pretty much just along for the ride. 1. Appendix the appendix, a small pouch attached to the large intestine, is perhaps the best-known useless organ, doing little except occasionally getting infected. However, it turns out that it might not be entirely useless. Scientific theories have been floating around since 2007 that the appendix might actually serve as a safe house for beneficial gut bacteria, storing it to replenish it in the rest of the gut if it gets wiped out by illness or, in modern times, antibiotics. If this turns out to be accurate, it's still not a particularly important organ, and if it gets severely infected, you still need to get it removed. Don't worry, hundreds of thousands of people get them taken out every year and are doing just fine. 2. Tailbone, or coccyx. Humans don't need tails, but our ancestors sure did, and tailbones, also known as coccyxes, are the last remaining part of them, consisting of three to five vertebrae that aren't connected to the spine. The coccyx is not a functional tail, but it is woven in with the ligaments, tendons, and muscles in the area. Occasionally, it gets rid of itself by fusing with the sacrum, another lower backbone. In cases of extreme pain that don't resolve with any other treatment, people can get their coccyx surgically removed, but it's unnecessary in the vast majority of cases. Occasionally, a baby will be born with an actual tail, and human embryos generally form with a tail that later disappears as it grows into the tailbone, but it's extremely rare. 3. Wisdom teeth. Wisdom teeth, a third set of molars, have made dental surgery a rite of passage. For those who get them, many people don't. They usually start emerging between the ages of 17 and 21. Often there's no room in the jaw and the teeth end up trapped. When that happens, they need to be surgically extracted. Occasionally they grow in without incident and just become extra teeth. It's a lot of trouble for a set of teeth that we don't even need. 
One theory is that our ancestors, who ate harder-to-chew things and didn't have dentists, needed them as backup teeth. Modern science has gotten pretty good at just replacing teeth as they fall out, but wisdom teeth could still replace damaged molars in a pinch. Number four, external ear-orienting system. If you have a pet dog or cat, you've probably noticed their ears snapping to attention at an interesting or startling noise. Humans still have those muscles and, likely, the brain circuits associated with them. In one study, researchers observed tiny, involuntary movements in the directions of interesting sounds. For one part of the study, they had participants read a boring text while they played attention-grabbing sounds like crying babies and footsteps. Next, they had participants try to listen to a podcast while a second podcast played in the background. Those ear muscles fired up in both cases. They're just obsolete for modern human beings. Some humans can still wiggle their ears, which does serve one purpose. It's a cool party trick. Number five, goosebump muscles. Human ancestors were much furrier than us and sometimes needed to fluff up their hair for warmth or to look bigger and more fearsome. They had tiny muscles attached to their hair follicles called erector pili muscles that would shift each hair up into a vertical position. Today, in our much more hairless state, those muscles give us goosebumps, also known as goose pimples, when we get chilly, scared, or excited. Some emerging research suggests these muscles may have a role in combating hair loss, and without them, we wouldn't have a name for the iconic children's horror series, Goosebumps. But as far as basic survival goes, the Erectoris pylorum are pretty much useless. Number six, third eyelid. Most animals have a third eyelid, also called the nictitating membrane, which serves as a kind of windshield wiper that distributes tears and clears debris from the eye. This trait evolved out of human beings and some apes, but we still have a tiny vestigial remnant in the inner corners of our eyes. It's a bit of eye tissue just inside that fleshy pink eye bump. In exceedingly rare cases, only two have ever been reported, humans can have a more developed nictitating membrane that covers a larger portion of the eye. So why did we lose ours? One theory is that, unlike animals that still have them, we're not typically sticking our faces directly into bushes or other animals to forage for food, so we have less debris to push out of our eyes. Number seven, the palmaris longus muscle. The palmaris longus is a muscle stretching the length of our forearm that's evolving away before our very eyes, literally. Because it's visible when you hold your hand and wrist a certain way, you can actually tell whether you still have yours on sight. It's already missing in a significant portion of the population, and different studies around the world have observed its disappearance in anywhere between 1.5% and 63.9% of participants. The muscle helps with wrist flexion in those who still have it, but it's getting progressively weaker as other muscles take over its duties. If you don't have one, you can still do all the same things as someone who does have it. While it's unnecessary as is, the palmaris longus is pretty useful as a donor tendon for plastic surgery. Up next, these veggies are good for your heart, from Consumer Reports on Health. 
People with higher blood levels of carotenes, compounds in carrots, spinach, pumpkin, cantaloupe, collard greens, kale, papayas, sweet potatoes, and red peppers, also had higher levels of HDL, or good cholesterol, and lower levels of VLDL, or bad cholesterol, in a Spanish study. Those who ate more daily produce had the highest carotene levels in their blood. And the source is Clinical Nutrition. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.